My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The invasion, the visitor, the encounter, the message, the predator, the capture, the stranger, the end, the secret, the end, the forgot, the react, the chain, the unknown, the escape, the underground, the decision, the spell, the departure, the sound, the discovery, the proposed threat, the conspiracy, the separation, the deception, the suspicious existence, the extreme sacrifice, the diversion, the beginning. Everworld 5 discovered the Destroyer. Hey, so Everworld is a thing that we read. Again? It is, unfortunately. Discover the Destroyer. And we did. Did we? We discovered it. Did and we? Well, we got destroyed, okay? The the stock market. <laughs> Discover the Destroyees. <laughs> yes, I think the Destroyer is capitalism. capitalism. It's always capitalism. Uh, I don't know, Jenny, you want to tell us what happened in this book, I guess we're calling it? Oh, wow, diving right into the summary. Okay, so let's see what happened in this book. We start out, our four heroes plus Senna, I use at least one of those words sarcastically, are in the uh, cavern of, is it Nidhogger? Is that how we're going to say this? Yeah, let's go with that. Are in Nidhogger's cavern with all of his gold stores. We know that he's very sad because his four treasures got stolen. These are like the treasures of the Celtic god whose name I don't remember. Dagda. Dagda? Did I say that right? Close enough. We don't need to remember because he's dead. (laughs) He is dead. It's true. Uh, They were stolen by the leprechauns. And for some reason, Nidhogger doesn't want to go after them himself. So our heroes volunteer to do it because otherwise uh, Nidhogger is going to kill them. So he's like, sure, you can go get my stuff, but you better come back within six days with all of my stuff. And to make sure you do it, I'm going to take your hearts out of your chests and replace them with rubies. And in six days, these rubies are going to catch on fire and kill you if you don't come back with my stuff. Uh, He does this to the four of them, not to Senna for some reason, which we will find out near the end of the book. It's not actually important. I don't know why I'm posing this like an exciting thing. (laughs) What was it? (laughs) You didn't pose it as an exciting mystery. I think someone else posed it as an exciting mystery and then just told us the solution. That's a great point. What a great point. So they walk out of the cavern and walk through some forests. In the forest, they run into a group of satyrs who are chasing a nymph named Idaria. The satyrs are like, huh, any nymph that we catch, we can have. That's the rule of the forest. And the nymph seems pretty scared and not into this. And so uh, our, our friends are like, um, no, and scare the satyrs away. One of them ends up like kind of bluffing and charging back at them. And David cuts him in half with a sword, sort of accidentally. Doesn't kill him, just means that his bottom half is kind of running around on its own. This nymph, who Ted has just told me, is actually called Idalia, not Idaria, very crucial point, is very grateful and volunteers to show them the way to Fairyland, which is where they're going to steal the stuff back for Nidhogger the dragon. She also uh, flirts heavily with Jaleel because she starts flirting with David and then Senna is like, nope, and... Idalia's like, oh, okay, I'll flirt with this one. Everyone kind of gives her a hard time, and Christopher is a real dick about it. And we also learn, I guess, that, like, nymphs are 
not real people somehow? We're going to talk about it. So Idalia leads them to this road and she's like, I can't travel on the road. And they're like, okay, bye Idalia. And they go on this road and come up to the gates of Fairyland where they meet this leprechaun who's like being all charming and folksy and then drops the act and is like, you have to pay if you want to come in here. And they're like, here, have this half a satyr that's been following us around. And the leprechaun's like, great, I'll go for that. So they go into fairyland and go to the market and uh, discover that fairies are basically capitalists. Uh, They are not magical in any way that we can see. They're just like humans, but capitalist, which makes sense. Uh, they explore the market and, um, David realizes like, oh, okay, capitalism. I'll just say that I'm in the market for these treasures. So he does, he kind of shouts it in the middle of the market and the fairies are like, nope, and knock him out and drag him to the king and queen in the nearby city. And the king and queen are like, oh, you are spies of Nidhogger. And they're like, no, we are sent by Nidhogger, but we're not spies. We're just supposed to get his stuff back. Can we do that? Can we like exchange something maybe? Then our the kids learn that the fairies are in league with the Hetwan. And that's probably why they were trying to get Nidhogger to come steal his treasure back. They wanted, because the Hetwan want to kill Nidhogger because for some reason he's a real obstacle to the takeover of Everworld. Senna realizes that she can manipulate them by telling the fairy king and queen and the Hetwan that they have the witch that Kaanor is after. Except she says it's April. They can't give Senna to the Hetwan because then she would be used to open the portal between the worlds. And so they're like, crap, guess we better go with this lie. So April gets carted away. They, the rest of them get to go free. And they realize, like, okay, we're going to have to act really fast. We're going to need to buy back this treasure. And Jaleel has an idea. He thinks that because the fairies are so into capitalism, a telegraph system will be very valuable to them because they'll be able to, like, communicate about commodities and stuff and, like, weather and other important news. So Jaleel approaches, like, the biggest businessman in the market and sells him on this idea and, like, starts building stuff out of copper wire. They're not sure if they can complete it in time. It's And even if they do, they might be able to buy Nidhogger's treasure back, but they probably won't be able to like ransom April. And so she's going to die when her ruby runs out in like four days or whatever. So they're all worried about this. And David looks through a gap in the, in the hedge and looks at the fairy city and is like, oh, that's how they were going to destroy Nidhogger. That's why they were luring him to the city because they like built all of their towers and stuff as gigantic arrows to shoot up at him and pierce him. So that's how they're planning to kill him. And he's like, oh, this is great. I can take this information back to Nidhogger and he can just come get his treasure back and he can give us our hearts back. Like I can sell him this information. This is, this will work. David's like, yes, this is our plan B. I'll go do this, but I'm going to bring Senna with me for some reason. And so he knocks her out and wraps her in a carpet and puts them both on like a cart and like hitches a ride out of the city. So Senna wakes up, is pretty mad, especially because she wanted to stay in Fairyland. She thought that would be a great place to like build a power network. And David's like, nope, we got to go talk to Nidhogger and get our hearts back. And they have a fight and he goes storming off and then he gets really sick, like some sort of awful stomach flu and can't move for like a day or so. And they're running out of time. And he wakes up in the real world and like finds out that Jaleel's plan has run into some problems and 
all very worrisome. But finally, he like drags himself into Nidhogger's cave and bargains with him to give him this information about how he can get his treasure back if they can get their hearts back. And he also says, you know, you also have to save Abe uh, because she's been taken hostage and they think she's the witch, even though she's not. And then we learn that the reason that Nidhogger didn't exchange Senna's heart is that Senna's heart as a witch's heart is too hard and he would have had to use a diamond and it's too expensive. Fascinating mystery. So Nidhogger agrees to this. David rides on him, like on his back to uh, Fairyland and uh, just tells him not to fly over the city. And Nidhogger flies over the market and threatens to burn it. And uh, the fairies are like, no, no, don't do that. We need a market because capitalism. And they agree to Nidhogger's terms to give him his treasure back. They won't give the witch back, but then Nidhogger's like, that's not the witch, you idiots. You can't even tell a real witch. Like, the other one was the witch. This is just a normal girl. So they also get April back. Everyone gets their hearts back, but they all get expelled. Uh, The four kids get expelled from Fairyland. And David's like, well, at least we didn't die. Wish we'd gotten more out of that. And Jaleel and Christopher are like, ha ha, we also got a backpack full of diamonds for giving the fairies a telegraph system. And they're like, but we can't spend them because we're not at the market. Oh, well. Then they see some Hetwan flying over, silhouetted against the moon, and are like, oh, no. When we left Fairyland, we entered the land of Ka'anor. Dun, dun, dun. Jenny, it sounds like you really like this one. Yeah, no, it sucked. What the heck was that portrayal of fairies? And also, David is the worst. I'm not sure he's actually worse than Christopher, but... I, there's some immediacy effect of having read his point of view that I just like hate him the most right now. Yeah, I still hate Christopher the most, and I'm dreading <laughs> the next book. <laughs> I hated Christopher and David in this. Yeah, they're both the worst. I liked Jaleel. Yeah, I don't think I can defend the quality of this book, but I think that it's as good as the second half of book four was for me. The plot didn't make any sense, but I think the plotting in this book was okay. Like, I liked that they had a specific task. I liked the back and forth. I liked the sort of, like, Jaleel has a plan and David has a plan and they kind of both need to happen at once. Like, it was almost good. Like, there's yeah. something there's something recoverable. And I there are a couple of things in particular that were interesting. But, like... It dragged it less than some of the series. Yeah, it has. had absolutely nothing to do with Celtic mythology. Nothing which, like, I'm sure whatsoever. we'll we'll get into. But, like... Do they even like mythology? Why are they writing this series? They love mythology. They wrote 10 books about it. (laughs) (laughs) Did they, though? Maybe they love mythology, but they hate everyone else who loves mythology. Hmm. I wish it was just an alien planet and that we were trying to, like, piece together, like, finding similarities between our own Earth mythologies and, like, alien mythologies. Because stories are universal. You know, like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe the Hetwan have a Cinderella myth in their history sort of stuff. <laughs> I would have found that more interesting because we've we've gone into little sidebars before about, oh, these are all the gods of war and chaos. What about all of the gods of the hearth and the home and all this and that? And it would be, I would feel more interesting if they were in a completely alien landscape hunting for similarities between our worlds and theirs instead what? of presenting a completely inaccurate portrayal yeah. of our world plus aliens. I'd read the heck out of that. Yeah. It's not even that this portrayal of fairies is 
inaccurate though it is which i would very much like to hear gray's rant which i hope she has oh don't worry it's just that like it just had nothing to do with fairies. Like, why were they not just humans? It just, the fairiness right? added nothing. Yeah, or like gnomes, goblins, like any kind of, any kind of like humanoid creature from a fantasy world. They could have been elves, right? They, they could have, have been dwarves. Been... Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> and I think I said this last time, but... The parts of the stories that Apple Grant completely makes up show their narrative strengths and their imagination and creativity in really interesting ways. So in the last book, for example, most of the stuff about hell was just completely made up from God knows where. And it was would have been interesting as a, we just made this up from whole cloth rather than we made up bits and we're trying to attach it to a thing that already exists. That combination mm-hmm. I found very frustrating. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, and like I think it's because they're not these books don't seem to be like playing with these ideas or building on them. It feels like a mishmash. Like we came up with this cool idea of like the the road to hell paved with the dude's heads. And we were like, I know, we'll just shove that onto hell with absolutely no real understanding of kind of how those myths were constructed and why. And and therefore it does it one, it doesn't hang together. But also it's incredibly frustrating for anyone who does love mythology to have this be a portrayal that has just enough truth where someone reading it could be like, oh, well, this must be what happens in Norse mythology if you haven't experienced it. And instead is like tiny grain of truth and then a whole bunch of just nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. And yeah, this book made me so angry in so many ways because of that. Preach. And I just, I feel that it's important for us to start with my rant about leprechauns because that's where we left off last <laughs> time. And because I'm not going to be able to talk about anything else until I get this off my chest. So if you don't mind... I'd like to start. Oh no, please. As I mentioned last time, leprechauns, not really a thing. In Ireland, in like pre-written mythologies, not a thing. I spent some more time over the last little while since we last recorded just double checking that. And yeah, not a thing. Like they exist as a, seem to be a, a borrowing from a different culture. Fine. The word certainly is, which I think is interesting, but like they're not really a thing. They kind of appear sometimes, but it's clear it's like an, a later addition to the, the heart of Irish mythology. And unfortunately, because of the way we tell stories and because of the way the tourist industry in particular has latched on to leprechauns and because of the way that Irish people are often stereotypically displayed, leprechauns have really taken on a life of their own as a symbol of Irish people. And like, we are totally complicit in that, right? Like, I often point out how my father looks and sounds like a leprechaun, right? He's short, he's got red hair, he's got an Irish accent. If you asked him to ask about your lucky charms, you'd think he was a leprechaun. It's just a thing. And like, similarly, Ireland as a whole has has really embraced the tweeness of leprechauns in order to get in tourism dollars. Come to Ireland, 
buy our stupid leprechaun dolls because you're a tourist and you will, and we want your money. Like, very pragmatic. We do not believe in leprechauns. We think they're very stupid. We get very annoyed when people think that we're all leprechauns. But also, if you're going to come to here and give us dollars, fine. Get, have a leprechaun. Yeah, go for it. Very practical. All of that is, is background, right? There are beautiful, interesting, wonderful, fascinating stories in Celtic mythology. And Apple Grant briefly, briefly kind of drives by them and 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 says oh hi waves out of their car and says oh hi dagda and the items of power exist that's nice let's talk about leprechauns some more which is a choice i personally find baffling baffling and then so there's the existence of leprechauns in the story to begin with and then there's the way the leprechauns are depicted and I'm going to read this to you because I'm so angry about it. And I'm worried our audience will think I'm making it up if I don't read it. So I'm going to read you a page of the book. As they're approaching Fairyland, here is what they see. A small person lounged beside the gate, tipped back on a chair. He was smoking a long pipe. He wore a bright red cap, a bright green tunic, and soft shoes that ended in curled pointed toes. He was approximately the same size as a dwarf, but built in more nearly human proportions. His legs were perhaps a bit short for his body, but other than that, he could have been a seven-year-old uh, with an old man's wrinkled, good-natured face. As he spotted us, he lifted his cap in greeting, smiled around his pipe, winked a blue eye. It's like right out of a fairy story, April marveled. My great-grandmother, may she rest in peace, not a thing teenagers say, May she rest in peace was from Ireland. <laughs> She'd tell stories about the leprechauns. No, she wouldn't. They were just like that. Exactly. It's exactly yeah, no. the image I had in my mind from when I was little. <clears throat> Top of the morning to you then, good folk, the leprechaun said. And ladies, sure, your loveliness pales the most beautiful rose on the bush. It does, it does, and no mistake. Hello, I said. We're looking for fairyland. I guess we're there. Huh? It was hard to feel very worried under the circumstances. You found it then, so you have. Aye, you found us out. How is it we can help you go, sir? Well, we're traveling minstrels. We're looking to find a place to put on a show. The leprechaun smiled. Minstrels, are ya? Ah, that's something then, eh? Minstrels, have you happened to notice as you walked along the road, I say, have you happened to notice that from time to time you came upon, perhaps even stepped in, a great steaming pile of manure? I nodded, grinning. Couldn't help myself. He was cute. And I didn't use the word cute. Did you notice that then? The leprechaun grinned right back at me. Suddenly the smile evaporated. Then you know what I think of your story of being minstrels. It's a great st steaming great pile of manure. The little man rested in his chair and took a drag on his pipe. Did he just say bull product, Christopher said? Bull, if you will. But horse, pig, sheep, ox, cow, and goat manure will do just as well. If you're minstrels, then I'm bleeding cacolic. Again, a much better reference and one I would be interested in to see what they do with. But Cahalan gets one <laughs> reference and then f*** off. Well, that's your opinion, I said. Anyway, we'd like to get going. Wucha, wucha then. And how about the entrance tax? The entrance tax? I glanced back, saw the beat wagon was slowly catching up to us. It was a stupid thing to be worrying about. Yes, it was. But I didn't want to hold up the line. Aye, the entrance tax. Who do you think pays for all the loveliness you see around you, eh? 
Who do you suppose pays me my salary to sit here all the long day playing the part? Me and my bright red cap and stockings and pointing shoes. Do you suppose it's all free? Do you think I sit here choking on this damn pipe and dressed like some old world pixie for my health? And what the bloody hell is that? Okay. What the f just happened? <laughs> because what that last, I wanted to get all the way to that last bit. Because the thing that I don't understand at all is that this man seems to be saying he is paid to be a, a fake representation of a leprechaun based on the portrayals of leprechauns in our world. And he gets to do that because of these, you know, the taxes one pays in the city pay in part for him to be the twee leprechaun sitting at the gate to welcome them to Fairyland. And my question is... And why? Everyone there. <laughs> this is a magical land. They walk in and there are elves and dwarfs and fairies and leprechauns. So what exactly is the point of having someone who apparently does not normally dress like this put on a costume of leprechauns in the old world, in quotation marks, because not a real thing, and then mm -hmm. sit at the, at the door to be like a cheerful, happy leprechaun welcome guard? It's not... Wizard of Oz. He's not the door guard. Why is he dressed like a stereotypical leprechaun and putting on this act, which is clearly an act because he takes it on, puts it on, and takes it off, depending on who he's talking to and like what he thinks about them. I it, it is so baffling to me the series of choices that went into this character and this portrayal of leprechauns. And also, I just, I don't understand what the f*** is happening. Can somebody please try to explain it to me? Please help. I have a theory. I think what's happening is that Apple Grant knows that leprechauns are like pretty much just like a tourist thing. Like they know all about your rant, Gray, that like leprechauns aren't really the heart of Irish mythology. But they have taken that and interpreted it to mean there is no heart of Irish mythology. Leprechauns, as a fake tourist thing, are all there is. And so that's as far as they go. And then once you get past the fake, like, leprechaun act, everyone inside is just, like, pretty much people. They're just, there's, there's no other magical or mythological elements there. I, it's as good an excuse as yeah. any. I don't hate it any less. I mean, it's not a good excuse, but... I, I don't know, because what we learn is that the... So, one, the, you make a big deal about these artifacts. They're set up at the end of the previous book. They are discovered and returned to Nidhogger in this book. Mm -hmm. And when they are revealed, it is like a bowl, a spear, and a sword. Just like, they're, they're not cool. They don't yeah, do anything. No, it's it's just a pile of junk. Yeah, the food isn't even that good. It's like half-rotted... Uh, corned beef and cabbage. No, it's no, not. It's corned no, beef and yeah. cabbage. It's just corned beef and cabbage, and they don't like it because it's not Irish food. D D Christopher says Irish food, corned beef and cabbage. That th this is the the only thing. If Apple Grant means this, like I hope they mean it, it is the only redeemable thing, which is corned beef and cabbage is not Irish food. Don't eat corned beef and cabbage in Ireland. That's not a thing. We didn't have beef. Like, not a thing. <laughs> corned beef and cabbage is what happens when you get Irish immigrants and Jewish immigrants together in the same place in a very short amount of time, and they have a, a combined culture that get, you know, we Jewish people transfer brisket to the Irish people, and the Irish people are like, fine, we can do something with it and turn it into corned beef. And like, listen. I am not a huge fan of corned beef and cabbage. Nobody I know is. It's become traditional Irish food in the same way that leprechauns are traditional Irish nonsense. It's all nonsense. <laughs> so if what they're trying to say is corned beef and cabbage is 
not great and Irish people don't like it, they get a pass for all of that. If instead what they're saying is corned beef and cabbage is terrible and Irish people do like it and it's Irish food, you can tell because it's coming out of Dakota's cauldron, uh, but it's terrible and no one should eat it, then I would just like to say, as I put in my notes, fuck you. <laughs> See, you're being very, very charitable, Gray. I think it's definitely the latter. Yeah. I think it's an expense at, uh, the joke is at the expense of Irish food, quote unquote Irish food. But yeah, they're 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 not cool and they're not ex. They don't like they don't do anything. And I think you're right, Jenny. That they're MacGuffins. Yeah, they're just MacGuffins. Yeah. And the the leprechauns or the the people of Fairyland. I don't even want to call them leprechauns. I don't think they're lep. I think right. they're just fairy. The fairy people. Yeah. Are not at all mythological. Um, not at all. And they're they're not magical at all. No. It was like a a send they're up mortal. of yeah. Of, oh yeah, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? That's only a portion of the story. They're, like, obsessed with money and trade. And I'm like, where's people asking for your true name? Where's, you know, (laughs) dancing in the... I don't know. I just... There was nothing fey about it. Whereas, like, you shouldn't eat anything because then you'll be caught there forever, which is... Oh, yeah, the peaches? When everyone's going on about how delicious and incredible these peaches are, and they started falling asleep while they were eating the peaches, I'm like, these are magic peaches. No, they're just really good. So I was momentarily optimistic after the guard at the gate scene when he, like, drops drops the thing because he goes on to the thing where he's like, you need to pay me. And they're like... We don't have, we have literally nothing we can offer him. And one of them, I think actually maybe Christopher just blushed and is like, well, <laughs> check out this thing that we have. This half a Seder. This half a Seder. <laughs> and he's like, interesting. And he like strokes his beard and he's like, I don't know, maybe. And then as soon as they do the deal, he's like, ha ha, you losers. Like, that's the most valuable thing you've ever had. And I was like, this is great. This is like, I'm hoping that it's Fairyland is going to be total like Alice in Wonderland, like, Ooh. like sort of like, surreal uh surreal weirdos right like it was just going to be all like dialed up to 11 but it it didn't really go in that direction it was just like pretty played straightforwardly like this is the the trading hub of everworld Mm -hmm. yeah which is so weird because i mean gray i'm sure you know a lot more about the actual like legends um like Celtic Celtic myths of like fairies, you know, the fae, the she, all of that. Like I mostly know what I've read in fantasy, but like fantasy does really cool things with fairies. Like, you know, the the true name thing that Meg referenced, the like the thing where like they can't lie but you also can't trust them. Um the thing where like they won't accept gifts because that creates an obligation. Like there's so many different elements that are fun to play with. There's like often a sort of unnatural beauty like time moves differently there's so many magical elements they could have played with and they don't play with any of them and one of the things that often comes up with fairies is that they can't abide steel or iron like cold iron is deadly Mm -hmm. to them like metals in general not like a huge thing for them and part of it is like the industrialization of the land was very difficult for the the peoples who were being displaced by I think it was like the Romans and then later um I don't know like different invaders yeah yeah oh yeah our friends the Vikings because the the industrialization sort of drove 
the native peoples underground and that's why you get fairies living in like fairy mounds and that's also why they don't like metal and so this is the people who get a telegraph and are really excited about it and this is a this is the people who embraces modern a modern version of capitalism and like trading commodities that doesn't that, that doesn't track at all it's like they had no sense they weren't taking fairies and like like we were saying earlier, they aren't earlier. They aren't riffing on them. They aren't adding their own elements. They're just not paying attention to any of the things that are normally ascribed to fairies or any of the interesting elements they could have used. Just none of it. And even within the fairy market, so a magical marketplace is a trope in a number of places, and the most famous of which is the Goblin Market, by which is a poem by Christina Rossetti. And again, a trope that they could have played with but did not, is that commerce with fairies, actual commerce, the exchange of buying and exchange of goods mm -hmm. with fairies is not a simple task. You do not show mm -hmm. up with a handful of, you know, copper pennies and exchange them for meat pies. That's not how fairy markets work. Fairy markets mm. work based on values and the the goods that one has and the services one can provide and if you make a straightforward exchange with the fairy it will not be straightforward they will mm. tempt you to a deal that seems too good to be true and that is because it is because you didn't read the fine print right i mean that's like one of those like the iron like not telling them your true name that's that's mm -hmm. part of what it means to interact with the fairy so when they get to a place that's like a fairy market I thoroughly expected that to be the case, that they would have to give up more than they bargained for in order to mm -hmm. make their way through the market and into the city and to talk to the king to get the thing back, right? That's, in theory, how a quest through a fairy market should work. And instead, they show up and it's a farmer's market where their American currency can be exchanged for three meat pies and then other goods that they have can be traded on up until they somehow come up with the idea that it would be really great if they could invent uh, an infrastructure for electricity within three days and put it in place <laughs> and sell it to enough people that they would be able to sell the idea to the king in exchange for the goods to give to the... It didn't make any sense. I'd love to tell you exactly what the plan was, but... Uh, and uh, yeah, and then all of that happened in a very straightforward way. They made friends with the fairy. They gave him what they had. He gave them the support yeah. that they needed. And it all worked out just fine. That's not and what fairies do. At the end of the day, they had a backpack full of diamonds and they were allowed to leave the city. Which like, no, you weren't. No, not if these are actual <laughs> fairies. Maybe these are just people. Exactly. So uh, a big disappointment for me in this book is that We've never had a ticking clock before. Mm. It's just mm -hmm. we wander, we go places, we do things. And it just happens in the time that the plot decides to happen to us. For the very first time, we're racing against an incredible deadline. We have six days or our hearts are all going to light on fire and burn us from the inside out. And I'm like, amazing. Stakes? I'm in yeah, for it. Finally. Their one and only plan, which Gray has just outlined as a really out there plan goes off without a hitch. They're done in plenty of time. Not only that, but Christopher's like, Jaleel, should we have a plan B? And Jaleel's like, do you know what? So much stuff could already go wrong with plan A that any plan B we came up with 
everything would go wrong. And I'm like, then make a plan C. <laughs> and it was just, it was frustrating that we had these constraints and it wasn't, we tried something, we failed. Oh no, our time is running out. It was, we only have one thing to try and it worked out for them perfectly. Yeah, one of the interesting things about the plot structure of this is that, like, so these aren't self-contained episodes like in Animorphs. They, like, a little bit are contained, but, like, there's no, they're not, like, going on missions and then going back to their normal life kind of thing. So something like this where the stakes are so high and they do this, like, really out there plan, it turns out that their plan A does work but wouldn't have gotten them what they wanted, so the plan B is what gets them what they wanted. Great, like, that's narratively satisfying. But they didn't end up, so they got what they wanted, but they didn't end up losing anything by it that, like, puts them, so, like, it, it's not a yes, but structure. It's a yes, oh, wait, what's next structure. And that's, like, kind of been the the problem with these books all along is that there's nothing really pulling us through them. So they kind of have to do the stinger at the end of, oh, no, now we've wandered into Ka Anor's land, randomly. I guess. See, and that stinger, uh, you know, the end of the two towers where we see the Nazgul flying slowly over Mount Doom, that's exactly where they need to be for their overarching plan of we have to fight Kaanor somehow. They were asking all these people through the whole book, how do we get to Fairyland? Does this take us to Fairyland? And then they just like, Nobody mentions that Fairyland is right next to the land that they are ultimately trying to get to above everything. Right, because they don't really have an, and there's no concreteness to their overarching plan. Right. And I think it was just not even put together, but it was it was the end of, I think, maybe book three, where they're like, we're going to have to destroy all the gods to prevent them from coming to Earth. Was that three or four? But they're like, great, we have a plan uh, now. We know what we three, have to yeah. do. We have to defeat Ka'anor. And then book four had nothing to do with it. Yeah. yeah. Well, why aren't they recruiting anyone that they need? They seem to, like you said, like Nidhogger and the the king and queen of Fairyland seem to be potential allies. And yet, instead of being like, hey, so have you heard how Khan was going to destroy Everworld? <laughs> yeah, like, they're like, we have to change the world. Oh, but we're not going to try to do that anywhere we go. I, I am sensing a, like, you know, by giving chemistry to the Kuhatch and by giving mm. um, high-frequency trading to the leprechauns. Is it going to be like modern technology saves the world? Maybe there will be some continuation in further books. If capitalism saves the world of magic, <laughs> I am going to lose my sh- I mean, it would be the most 90s outcome yeah. possible. I will say, uh, they did agree. not have to introduce high-frequency trading. Because the fairies were already trading futures, options, and swaps, which, as someone who works in finance, I was delighted to see. (laughs) The thing is, I don't... uh, So, I just want to point out, in the Discworld series, what Terry Pratchett does with the Clax system later on in the series, when he, he finally... Like, there's a lot of Discworld books that are about, like, what if Discworld has movies now? What if Discworld has a printing press now? And when he gets to, like... What if it has the telegraph slash the internet slash like modern Going communication? Going postal. I love yeah, that. All book. that stuff is like so great and so well thought through and so well grounded. And like, what if magic were real? And this is like, I don't understand how you have all of these gods and peoples of gods. And for the first time, people aren't like limited to their fiefdoms. It seems like this is the commercial hub mm-hmm. of Everworld. Mm-hmm. And it's been that way for hundreds of years. And the Hetwan 
need this market to be functioning in order to feed themselves. Mm -hmm. And yet, no one has any magic that is better than a telegraph. Like, (laughs) really? Really? Yeah, and also nothing, like, not only is there no magic fulfilling this function, but, like, in the absence of magic fulfilling it, no one invented anything? We also know that we we also learned, okay, we haven't even gotten into this yet, but, like, the first quarter of the book is spent with satyrs and nymphs that are explicitly from the Greek pantheon and not at all from, like, you know, like, Celtic wood sprites Mm -hmm, or anything. mm -hmm. And I'm sure we'll return to it, but... What we learn is that the Greek gods have created nymphs and other creatures as like automata that exist only for a single purpose. Yeah. So again, and also they move super fast. So again, why isn't Hermes creating <laughs> and selling messenger, like basically messenger pigeons that can yeah. fly around Everworld transmitting messages at light speed and be the richest of the Greek gods, right? Yeah. Like there are a lot of questions. They haven't really put the thought into like, what if all of these mythologies existed together? I think I said something like this previously where like there's so much potential for like you get these gods and other mythological creatures of these different worlds to like the combinations would be really interesting and they're just not doing anything with that. Mm. They're instead like making stuff up that's not even grounded. Here's in my it. pitch. Connecting okay. back to your idea from earlier, Meg, Everworld is seems like a really alien world and then what they learn over the course of the series is that it's a it's a world where a thousand years ago all of the mythologies became real and diverged, but all of the like Colombian exchange between those mythologies makes the world seem alien. And so then it's like you start to realize, oh, you know, same origins, but like when the Greek gods and the Egyptian gods all got smooshed together, you know, mm. this is what society is like. Yeah, maybe Kaanor isn't an alien. It's like the result of some mythology blending. I don't actually think that's going to be true because <laughs> oh yeah, I think it's just not. an alien. But so I share your anger if capitalism is the answer to all the problems. <laughs> but I did find it maybe other than the blood transfusion, my favorite example of them using their like cynical modern teen selves to like problem solve. I very much enjoy the like we'll come into the market and we'll invent some stuff and we'll you know, like, take modern ideas and put them onto this thing. The, like, ability of their economy to, like, accept this and have it be a win for the Everworld kids is completely ridiculous. (laughs) But I did really like... It's fun when they apply their modern... I really liked Jaleel's whole plan and that he was allowed to kind of... I like that he was allowed to succeed at it, even though it's like, I guess... I, I take the point that it wasn't a yes, but it's like a yes and type resolution. It would have been so easy to fix that, like, we resolve this with no consequences. Oh, no, new problem thing. Like, it, they could have been, like, they resolved it, but the fairies are like, we're mad at you. We're shipping you off to Kaanor. Like, yeah. Or even if Kaanor was impressed with what they did. Or someone's oh. like, oh, I, I'm i here representing someone else. They're so impressed with what you did. Uh, they've promised to trade you, like, these goods and these resources that you really need to continue on with your quest. Ooh, and they're like, like great, this. yeah, let's meet with him. And it's Ka'anor who's like, hey, these cynical modern day teens who don't believe in anything will surely help me in overthrowing the gods of Everworld. Nice. That also like would have been more interesting. I will say to your point, Ted, about the the invention of electricity being cool. Like that was one of the two things I remembered. I remembered the blood transfusion, and I remembered that at one point Jaleel invents electricity. <laughs> so, like, I think I also enjoyed that, like the applications of the modern know how in this world. I, yeah, I was thinking about it, like 
it was very unsatisfying. But I, I imagined that had I read this far in the series as like, you know, an 11 year old, I wouldn't have understood how stupid the idea was. I think it would have just been like a straight cool. from Apple Grant to me, like, yeah, if I went back to the Middle Ages, I could invent electricity and capitalism and be the richest man <laughs> in the world. Right? Like, I think that I would have that unearned confidence as, like, an 11-year-old reading this. I also really like the thing where Jaleel's like, got a nap. Need to look up some stuff in the real world. Like, that's cool. (laughs) The thing where you're like, okay, I'm going to deliberately sleep so that I can go back to, like, modern Chicago and, like, research how electricity works. But I wish this had been, like, written by Neil Stevenson or something. Because then we would have gotten, like, four chapters about, like... Julia doing research and being like, oh, well, I can only, I only have this much copper and, you know, <laughs> this is the limits of my production system and I have a four day timeline. So here's how I'm going to use pulleys, you know, like. <laughs> Well, also, we weren't in Jaleel's head, which yeah, makes it yeah. a little bit like David like didn't really care about what was mm-hmm. happening. And we should talk about David's attitude. <sighs> can I just read the first paragraph of the book? Because yeah. I burst out laughing at our, how we are reacquainted with David. They had taken my sword from me. Galahad's sword. My sword. Mine. <laughs> my own. My I know. <laughs> he He doesn't totally keep up that tone, but, like, every once in a while you're like, oh, yeah, wow, he's a total dick. Like, the, the thing where Jaleel's like, wait, what if I invent the telegraph? Um, David's like, well, I guess it might work, but it wasn't my idea. And then he's like, wait, it was my idea to go to the market. So I guess, I guess this was sort of my idea. Okay, great. We can go with it. Like, that's like actually what he thinks. Like, that's not even like an undercurrent. Like, he's actually like, I don't know if we can do this if it's not my idea. Oh, no, wait, I found a way to take credit. Okay, thank goodness. What? Like, how is this the actual character? He is terrible. Why? Why did they think we would want to read about this guy? I hate him so much. It's fascinating. We should talk about his psychology, because I think there are some parts of it that are very realistic. It's just choosing to make him the protagonist is such a strange choice. Like, I feel like he's kind of like the warrior hero, you know, macho type who's like not the brightest. He feels entitled and resentful. Mm -hmm. That's like a really realistic trope it's a realistic thing that happens in the real world mm-hmm. like but it it feels more like an uneasy ally to the protagonist yeah, might be that like kind of character or like a villain who yeah. you realize has a has some deeper issues motivating them but it's like you're alone in everworld these are the only people <laughs> who could possibly care about you and you're spending all this time resenting them it's like it's not a i don't know it's not that appealing and then like we learn, we also learn a lot about how his like be a man trauma comes from being abused at summer camp and his like, you know, the fact that he can't even think about it straight. He's so in denial about it. It's such mm-hmm. a repressed memory or something, which is again, like, I guess it is fertile ground for telling a story about a character, but like, mm-hmm. I feel like not this way. And it doesn't do, I feel like the combination of elements doesn't do any favors for David in my mind. I, it's, mm-hmm. I still find it very hard to like him, even if I understand the factors that lead him to act the way he does. I wish he wasn't the leader. I wish we'd really leaned strongly into April's the leader. 
because she's the one who, like, decides when to kind of let David loose with the sword. Mm. And, like, I wouldn't mind if, if he resented her for that, like, straight up. And there was, you know, relationships and tensions and, like, places to grow within the team. Because where he's like, oh, they took my sword away, but they gave it back when they were ready for me to be the leader. And I'm like, you're the enforcer, man. You're not the yeah. leader. That was kind of my my question. Like, every once in a while, someone would say something like, you know, general or like, he'd be like, yes, leader. I'd be like, wait, but you're not the leader. Like, it doesn't ring true at all to me that the group thinks of him as the leader, even though sometimes they say things that imply that they do. They tell it's just people a very weird, like, yeah, like the book keeps coming back to this idea that he's the leader, but like, it doesn't feel like that dynamic at all. Yeah. And one of the reasons that it doesn't, that that dynamic does not feel like it exists is the presence of his history of abuse. I do think when we put this up, we should make a note that like this whole series content warning child abuse, because it Mm -hmm. surprised the heck out of me when it came back. If we remember in the first book, it's mentioned as one of one of his motivations for needing to be the leader, for needing to be in charge, and for needing to be responsible for everybody else is he points to two experiences in his life where he one in which he did not defend someone who was being abused and one in which he did and it went poorly. The the kid he defended from being bullied um, turned on him and was angry. And then in the first one was summer camp there's a kid in his in his cabin who's being abused by one of the camp counselors and he doesn't do anything and and that guilt is still with him and that's why he now feels the need to be a leader okay now in this book we discover that in fact that kid who is being abused by the counselor is david himself and that he has essentially dissociated this memory to remember it as though it happened to someone else and not to him which I am not a psychologist. I have no no bearing on this. I will just say that my mother-in-law, father-in-law, and sister-in-law are all clinical psychologists. My mother-in-law in particular deals with traumatized children and responses to trauma. And this is the, that whole section of basically David remembering the trauma that happened to him is something that is from what I understand, a very typical trauma response. You you sort of separate yourself from that trauma and kind of block it away, which is not a healthy way to deal with it because it doesn't allow you to heal and, and recover. And so there are essentially ways of, of dealing with that. But unfortunately, one thing that we've seen in this kind of research is that when people relive those traumatic experiences, they essentially revert to the age they were at which that trauma happened. So children, adults who as children experience childhood trauma essentially revert to their childhood self when they're reliving it. And that is sort of a newer discovery in the field of psychology and has um, led to some really interesting kind of hopefully breakthroughs. But in this book, he is having these flashbacks to the cabin that are from all I can see, like dissociative episodes where he thinks he's in, he describes it at one point as a third universe, right? He's in Everworld, he's in the real world, and then sometimes he's back in this cabin, which means something that's happening in Everworld is making him relive this trauma, like re-experience it. And then at the end, he's very, very ill, and he sees this happening again. And Senna's voice somehow is in his head, 
and points out that David is the child who's being abused. It's not anyone else because you're weak, David, she says. That's why he picked you because you're weak. And David's still trying to dissociate. He says, no, he was weak. Him, the kid, the kid was weak. That's why. Are you blind? Are you that deluded? Look at his face, David. No, no, no. See that crying little boy? See him cower? Do you see his face, David? Who is that, David? Who is that you see? Who is that sniveling little weakling? Which, Jesus, f like the the amount of psychological abuse that she is currently perpetrating, if this is actually Senna and not just his mind, you know, bringing her in, mm-hmm. that is some real fucked up shit. Like that is, that is psychological abuse. And he is not in a position where he can deal with this situation. He is not in a position where he can process this trauma. And the book does not provide enough context or distance for the reader to process what is happening either because that chapter ends very abruptly he says i felt dead dead and going through the motions of life playing the hero and nobody giving a damn that entire chapter is one feels very out of place in this book i do not understand what it is doing there i do not think it provides additional support or context for david's actions nor does it give enough justification for his decisions. It does not justify him punching Senna out in order to get her out of fairyland. It does not justify, I think it's perhaps designed to justify why he wants to be the leader so badly and to show so much strength, but the book does not make that point. It relies on the reader to make that point. And as an adult, I can take that step back and say, I think that might be what you're doing. As a young adult, I do not think that that's necessarily going to be what happens. And so I think this is actually a really irresponsible thing to do in some ways. Children do deal with trauma, but adults should be helping them process it, not just showing that it's happening and like dumping it out of nowhere for no reason with no warning. There's no foreshadowing for this. It's just all of a sudden, bam, it was David. I am going to stop there because I have a further rant about the next chapter and how David tries to process it, but I've been talking for a long time and I'm sorry about that. I just feel really strongly about this being bad. Well, one of the things that occurred to me while I was reading this book is that I think some of the things we've been objecting to are coming from the way that Apple Grant interprets the job of a YA writer versus a middle grade writer. Like these are... In some ways, these still feel like middle grade to me, like in terms of length, but the characters are older and like the content is such that I think it is intended to be for a YA audience. And I think Apple Grant really feels in Animorphs a responsibility to its audience to like instill something good in them. I think that's why we don't get racism in Animorphs Mm. it's because Apple Grant feels like okay that's not something we should be imparting to children but slightly older teens we can go there like that's not our Mm. I'm thinking of like it's not our charge it's not our job it's not our like mandate mandate Ooh, I think that might be it the way they talk about how they introduce a lot of concepts and ideas whether that's plot points histories you know, ideologies, issues, they've put them all in these books, but they haven't gone below to either like connect them together or like explore and explain them that, uh, and I think it it ties into our, our larger irritation with this series is there's a lot of stuff that's in these books 
but the books don't explore or connect or thematize, I guess, any of this that they put in. And so we have very disjointed and strange mythologies. We have very disjointed, okay, we're going back to like Christopher, where he'll say all these heinous things and the kids will call him out and be like, that's a heinous thing. And they've been doing this for five books without any sort of examination beyond just like surface level stuff. And when you're middle grade and you, like we're saying, they do take the time to talk things through with their audience and make sure that like the audience understands that Jake is feeling this way because of this emotional thing he's going through, that they're kind of leaving too much on the shoulders of their audience by not putting a stronger foundation beneath the concepts that they're introducing through the series. Yeah, I don't think it's even that they're like leaving too much to the reader. They're just like not doing anything with what they introduce. Like Mm -hmm. the, I was realizing that like, oh, the reason there's so much sexism in these books, I think it is a misinterpretation of the mandate of a YA author, which is that like, oh, okay, you are, you can have racier content with older teens than you can if you're aiming at like middle school kids. Mm -hmm. That's not the same as like racy content and sexism are not the same thing. And like, it's like they suddenly were like, oh, we're allowed to put all this stuff in. And then maybe they don't either they don't know what to do with it. Or now we're seeing more about I don't want to speculate too hard about who they are as people, but they seem to feel like, oh, this stuff is bad for children. But it's fine for adults to like have like effort to be this element in this book for I mean, not even adults for young adults mm-hmm. to have but like, all we need to do is like call out that it's bad. But like, then we can just keep including it as like a punchline. And like, as just these traits of these characters we're supposed to like and sympathize with, like, they just don't know what to do with it. Hmm. They don't know how to use it to make anything more interesting or complex or like, carry it through as a storyline or anything. So the the way that these are set up with each character being the narrator, that a lot of what's going on is very internal. And there's no external growth of relationships or like discussion of concepts or like the kids getting closer as friends or hating each other even more as enemies that were five books in and they all kind of feel the same, not even distaste with each other, but like nobody's, (laughs) so if it's a video game, nobody's like relationship with this person has grown or with this person has deteriorated. It's the same problem we have in book one interpersonally are the same problems we have now in book five. Mm -hmm. That, oh yeah, David and Jaleel are kind of friends. You know, Jaleel covers for him when he falls asleep in, in Everworld. Christopher still makes all of these weird jokes about everybody, but we just accept that's how Christopher is. So it's like everyone has just accepted this is how it is and this is how we feel about each other. And there's no... I don't know. There's no growing animosity. There's no growing attachment. It's just, it's very constant. Yeah. And I think, I feel like there's a lot of directions this could go in. I want to talk about David and Senna's relationship as Mm -hmm. portrayed in this book. Because the thing that I'm realizing is that there's nothing, it's like all pain. And to your point, Gray, Senna is an absolute monster to David. Mm -hmm. Like she's, I think the first two books maybe 
flirted with the idea of her, is she a villain or not? But it's clear through her behavior that she is a bad person, right? And, like, there's no sense that the ends will justify the means or anything like that. It's really, like, she's a cipher who treats these characters terribly. And David is in this... He is tortured by his relationship to her. We get a whole chapter in the middle where he's basically like, yeah, you know... It's so I'm so pathetic because I I love her even though I know that I only love her because of her magic wham wham that she does does to me. But mm-hmm. he's like, but I have to go to her anyway. And like that kind of you know darkness or something like to show and to feature in the story. Like isn't that interesting? <laughs> like the in the animorphs, the dynamic between the kids is so different. Like they're all friends and they're working towards the same goals, but the issues that they are working with are such interesting like gray areas and you can get a scene where like Rachel and Marco or Cassie and Jake have pretty relatable reasonable responses to an issue and like within a couple of pages you get characters say we we should do this but what about that oh no what about that well we're out of time we have to do something and they move on. And, mm-hmm. and But those moments are super powerful. And here it's like we're spending pages and pages and pages on like Senna is being psychologically abusive to David. But it's like, for what? It's not interesting. It's like they're not even trying to say like this is an example of a codependent relationship where like it is clear to adults that Senna and David should not be together. But like they're both trapped in it and like there's some tragedy there. There's no tragedy. She's like an evil sorceress who is tormenting this guy. It's like, there's nothing to it beyond that. And it's not interesting. I mean, one of the things that Animorphs does so well is bringing nuance to the enemy that they're facing, right? I mean, you get all Mm -hmm. of the Yerks, and Yerks are very bad, and Viscera 3 is very bad, but you also get Aftran and the Yerk resistance movement. And you also see the Andalites you know, destroying the Hork-Bajir homeworld. Like, there is Mm -hmm. nuance in that world. And I can't tell if they're trying to bring nuance into this and just doing it really poorly, or if they don't care about it. And, for example, when after Senna gives up her sister and, like, accuses her of being the witch, David is, is, you know, a little bit appalled by that. And she asks him, which is better, David, to do a harmful thing with the best of intentions or to do the useful thing, whatever your motivations. What everlasting nonsense is that sentence? What does that mean? What are you talking about? Should you do the harmful thing or the useful thing? Okay, but like, what are you talking about, you bananas pants sorceress? Like that doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It's a very bad summary of what the choice was. Exactly. Like, that's not the right summary of it. Ooh. And it's just, and it is really, like, as as Ted was saying, the codependence of this relationship is, like, it's so gross. It's so gross. And I feel like it gets papered over a little bit where David's like, well, but like, I used to really love her before I realized what she was doing, and now I still love her. But, like, I have to save her from herself. And it's okay that she put the... I mean, it's not okay that she put the whammy on me. Obviously, that was bad. But, like, at one point, he crawls to her on his hands and knees just so she'll hold him for, like, a second, which is heartbreaking. And then she 
like walks away and does it in order to to make him feel how alone he would be without her which like again abusive mm-hmm. so it's just like it's just fucked up Ugh. and yet somehow i don't like i'm not interested in any of these i think this is what you were saying meg none of the relationships between any of the characters are interesting including to me the relationship between david and senna mm-hmm. because senna doesn't feel like a real person I don't know. I I, I feel like these books have completely failed to interest me in any of the individual characters or in any of the relationships between the characters Mm -hmm. or in Uh, any of the mythologies. I I will. I mean, I agree with you largely. I will say that between the last book and this book, the relationship that is most salient and interesting to me right now is Jaleel and Senna Mm. um, because I really like their alone time in book four. Um, and he, there was a. I really loved the scene when they first get into Fairyland, and Senna basically is just like low key manipulating all of them to like tear the group apart, and like mm-hmm. and, and like and they're all like feeling bad and walking apart, and then Jaleel suddenly calls her on it, and then everyone's like, oh, like like <laughs> she, she almost got away with that, like yeah. So there's something about the way those characters see each other, and like it's almost. I think what maybe what is interesting about it is that. Jaleel seems to have the best read on Senna and she seems to have like have a, a grudging respect for the fact that mm. he doesn't fall for her stuff. Yeah. There's like a little bit to that, but it's a I think I think I would see to your larger point that it's not that interesting. <laughs> I would also say that to add to the list of things that are not interesting in this book that Jenny has carefully <laughs> laid out is actually the plot because we are five books in and there is not, as far as I can tell, any overarching plot. Like, there has not been a sense throughout these books of, like, our goal is there are five of us here and we want to get home and we are going to find anyone in this world who can help us get home. They're like, sometime we might get home. Well, I would say that the overarching theme of the books is welcome to Everworld because all it does is introduce new information. And so we're getting, like... Just a bunch of new facts all the time, but we're not synergizing them in an interesting and progressing forward way. Yeah. Well, you want to know what these books are about in a succinct summary. It turns out they're like mass market paperbacks written by Scholastic for YA kids. So the back of the book is going to have a really good explanation of (laughs) what Everworld is about, right? Because on the Animorphs, it's like they don't know who we are, but... You know, we need to get the truth out. It could be anyone you know. And as a kid, you're like, what is this? I need to know. Take me to the underground base where they are making sharks smarter. Yes, right? sure, please. Mm. So let me just read you the back of book five, Great. which is, you know, five out of 12, right? Senna. The one and only reason David, Christopher, <laughs> April, and Jaleel find themselves in a place that is magical and terrifying and wonderful all at once. Senna is also the reason they can't get back to their own world. It seems she only shows up when she wants to be found, and she always disappears. At the moment, Senna is the least of their problems. Now they have to make a choice. Outsmart the dragon that killed Galahad, or die. And the odds of David and the others surviving by themselves aren't very good. But they've met some Everworld residents that might be willing to help for a price. Senna. Well, they're really struggling to come up with a good summary for this. Did any of that happen in this book? Yeah, they're like 
One, Nidhogger is not the dragon that killed Galahad. David goes on an extended <laughs> rant about how he tried to fight that dragon, and this one is bigger. But yeah, none of this happens. This doesn't okay. happen at all. <laughs> they don't bargain over Senna. It is true that Senna appears and disappears, not according to her whims, but according to the whims of the plot, which is incredibly boring. The worst plotted thing in this book is David says, Senna has to come with me on this quest because she is, quote unquote, my responsibility, whatever fucked up thing that means. So he punches her and wraps her up in a rug and takes him out into the woods, at which point she yells at him pretty understandably and he leaves her in the woods (laughs) and then she is gone. What is that? That's terrible, terrible plotting. And now the next book is going to be like, oh, if only we had Senna. (laughs) And then she's going to appear at the end and they're going to be like, now we're back with Senna. Oh, no. Santa's in the well. Gotta go find, you know, the dog goddess. Yeah, they're all going to be mad at David because, oh, he let Senna go because he loves her and he can't be trusted around Senna. I just hate everything so much. The plot is, is Senna walking with them or not? (laughs) And it's just like a real back and forth. You don't know whether she's going to be with the group. It's it's so hilarious to me that the first word and, in fact, entire first sentence of this summary is Senna. And the last word after the colon is, is also Senna. Senna. These books don't know what they're what to do with Senna. Like, at the beginning, it was like, oh, no, can we find her? And then the backs of the covers were like, they don't know if they'll find her. And, of course, they'd already found her. And now they're like, crap, they found her. Um, how can we still make this interesting? Senna. We'll just say the word a bunch, and then people will know that it's interesting. I don't understand, and it makes me unhappy. I have I have some more like David psychology thoughts. Okay, which you oh, know, good. we could cover if people want to respond to it. Um, so the one thing that I found that was that I was interested in and was not just dark for the sake of being dark is like, and again, like I don't know why you'd put this in a YA series, but the way that David reflects on his trauma is. You know, the pleasures of life fade, but fear is always as fresh as it was, like, the day you felt it. And I was like, oh, God. Like, I think that... that feels kind of anamorphic. Well, no, but, like, that's, that's like, that's that's pretty real. But but it's like, why why are we even going there? Like, I don't understand it. The other thing is that I feel like maybe I would have, coming to this book younger again, been like, oh, you know, <laughs> David's such a jerk, but he had, you know, he was abused. He has the stuff he's still working with. You know, like, maybe we should give him a break on the fact that he's so entitled and resents his friends. But, like... Mm-hmm. And punches Senna in the face. And punches Senna in the face and all that stuff. And, like, I again, I don't know if, like, Apple Grant, if that's what they think and what they want or whatever. But, like, to me, in no way does the his his, like, entitled, resentful warrior mentality and his dy- dynamic with this particular group really have anything to do with the dissociative episode about his past trauma. It's like, it's so shallowly connected. Mm-hmm. And I think the the sort of like, uh, I don't know, almost like survivor's guilt. I don't know if that's the right word, but the idea that like he has to, you know, he can never not be a man again. Like whenever, whatever the moment is, he has to be as manly as possible or something. Mm-hmm. Like doesn't man. really connect with any of the ways that he resents April and Jaleel for being competent or 
the way that he like the thing that you were saying about how he's like well it has to be my idea or whatever mm-hmm. right like it does relate to maybe the idea that he peed himself in front of loki but mm. like that doesn't you know i don't know i feel like you can take any pain and attach it to toxic masculinity yeah and it doesn't change the fact that you're getting swept up in toxic masculinity, right? Like, it's just not, it's not that, it's not that interesting, right? And like, yeah. how you deal with David based on the behaviors he displays really has nothing to do with whatever troubled past he may or may not have. And it's just not, I don't know, it's not yeah. that well done. The thing is that like, he is, he has this traumatic past and it did seem to me like Apple Grant was trying to use it to sh- manipulate the reader into thinking that like, okay, well, we can excuse some of David's behavior. But what I always come back to when people say things like that is lots of people have trauma in their lives in lots of different ways. Yes. And while your past trauma is something that, of course, we care about and want to help you work through, it does not excuse you being... A, a cruel person as mm-hmm. he sometimes it's like people have ki- all kinds of trauma and they're still kind and that mm. is i feel a base uh, level that one can expect and that's not what happens here thank you that thank you <laughs> that is exactly it okay the other thing i want to just in the same chapter this is the the chapter following um his his uh memory of what happened to him and david goes on this sort of extended philosophical fever-induced hallucination about how human beings are designed, like how we're made, how we grow, and what that means for us as adults that is so wrong. I I feel the need (laughs) to stop and mention it. Because it's okay. I just like cut this out of my memory. Me too. I have no idea what you're talking about. And I read this yesterday. It's when he's like (laughs) ill and hallucinating, right? Yes. I'm going to read it to you. So just to remind you. (laughs) It's funny, you know. He says we're free. We make choices. We weigh things in our minds. Consider everything carefully. Use all the tools of logic and education. And in the end, what we mostly do is what we have no choice but to do. What? Uh-uh. <laughs> and it makes you think, he says. Why bother? But you bother because you do. That's why. Because, and please take a second to really capture this metaphor, because you're a DNA brand computer running childhood <laughs> 101 software. They update oh, the yeah. software, but the changes are always just around the edges. And here's the part that I highlighted and really just want to make sure we talk about. David says, you have the brain you have, the intelligence, the talents, the strengths and weaknesses you have from the moment they take you out of the box and throw away the styrofoam padding. Nope, not at all. Zero <laughs> percent true. Try again. Go to have a psychology 101 class. Are you f***ing kidding me? No, that's not true at all. We are not born with any innate Brain, intelligent, talent, strength, and witnesses. <laughs> we learn all of those things. Some of our ability to take those things on may definitely be nature, but most of this stuff is nurture. And they're, they do not take me out of the box being good at stage managing. Not a thing. <laughs> That's not at all how Ooh, that, that works. That might be an exception. I don't know. And the <laughs> only exception that he makes is the fear. The only thing that changes, he says, from the time you are born, the time they take you out of the box, the only thing that changes is what you fear. Which is banana pants bullshit. 
That's the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my entire life. And if I'm supposed to take out of this goddamn book that I am exactly as good as I was when I was a kid and I should pretty much stop trying because ain't nothing else gonna change, then I would just like to point out that was a terrible message. <laughs> I do think it's an, it's an interesting window into David's psychology. If this is what he thinks, he seems to really hate himself. Yeah. And it seems like maybe what, like... The way that he rationalizes that it's okay to be himself, even though he is a person he hates, is like, well, we have no choice, so this is who I have to be. And he's, like, trying to make some kind of peace with it. It's definitely, I don't know, it it, it falls sort of under that category of, like, maybe they figured they could put this incredibly messed up, like, philosophy and just state it as true in this book because, like, the readers are older teenagers now, and they'll know better than to take it at face value. Okay. But it's, I mean, that seems like a really questionable assumption. I, and also, they don't do anything interesting with the psychology. I don't know. And the scene in which this is happening is actually the most challenging thing that any of the kids have really had to overcome so far. David's working against the clock. He's trying to retrace all their steps alone. And apparently while this is happening, the plan back in Fairyland is falling apart because there's one sentence where he mentions that he falls asleep and he talks to Christopher and Christopher's like, yeah, it's not going really good. And then we're back to David, like trying to trek his way back to the cave and they compress into this one chapter, maybe three of their six days. Mm -hmm. Uh, he, oh yeah, he also touches base with April, who's like, yeah, I'm cold and the dungeon sucks. And he's like, oh, we're trying to get you out. And I'm like, I would almost rather see a much longer David alone plot driven thing with like a goal, a stakes. I think David should have been plan B from the beginning that like Jaleel is working on his electricity and that's plan A. And then David's like, I'm going to be plan B because from the beginning, I've been hoping that these kids will split up <laughs> and follow their own pursuits and goals instead of wandering around together. And they tried to compress so much dramatic, deep stuff in a six-page chapter. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is interesting. More of the book should be this so you have time for David to think about and go into these surface-level thoughts that Gray has pointed out are banana pants and weird. Do you know what the real high-frequency trading opportunity is for them? Go to opposite sides of Everworld and then communicate <gasps> instantaneously yes. while they sleep. Genius. That's brilliant. They it's like, you know, they're like the they're the Palantirs, right? Like they're yes. Yeah. That's so cool. Sorry, I they got excited about that idea. They get four different civilizations allied against Ka'anor and then communicate strategy while asleep. That's and of course so it would be smarter. difficult because like you'd wake up and you'd be asleep in the real world and it would be this huge challenge. And that would be cool. Listen, from the beginning, I want these kids to each split up and get a, like either get adopted by or ally with a different one of these yeah. civilizations. Totally sold by that now. Yeah, so we're not just, we're walking through the Aztec village and we're just getting like surface level observations but right then we could go deeper into like worlds live and understand and like learn kind of more the backgrounds of these it just it would be more interesting and more of a drive i mean also if they're gonna do mythology of the week at least do mythology of the week don't keep coming back 
to Norse mythology. We have had <laughs> okay, five thank books. You. Only one of them has been about a mythology that's not a Northern European mythology. And that one, we didn't even meet any characters in that civilization. It's absolutely ludicrous. I know we've said it before. It only gets more egregious that we've only done British Isles and Norse mythology. And poorly. There's a whole world. If we're not going to go deep into anything, at least go broad. They're not doing either one. Hi, I would like to put in another plug for the animated series Onyx Equinox. Uh, It's all available to watch on Crunchyroll right now. (laughs) And it is about multiple gods from different Mesoamerican civilizations coming to the realization that there's not enough blood for all of them to have. And in fact, one of the gods is going rogue and stealing blood sacrifices from the others. So these gods must pick a champion to like close all the gates of the underworld. Anyway, it's a really great own voices story. It's written by Sophia Alexander. And she has like done so much research and she's brought like so much really specific and beautifully nuanced cultural stuff into Onyx Equinox. So please go check it out. You can watch it all on Crunchyroll. We should just get sponsored by various pieces of media that are doing whatever work does, (laughs) but so much better. (laughs) So I do want to talk a little bit about the Nymph and Satyrs scene. Uh, We haven't really touched on that because it's like completely not related to anything else that happens in the plot. What are you talking about? They use the satyr legs to get into fairyland. True. I stand corrected. So the portrayal of Adalia is so sexist. It's ridiculous. In like several different axes. Like, okay, we've talked before about how portrayal of women or like any female character in this series has not been great. We do get, like, the the fairy queen is, like, a little bit cool in this book. It might be, like, the first, like, competent woman who hasn't been primarily defined by her sexuality. But, like, Idalia is, like, the most egregious example. Mm, I don't know. We, had, we did have hell. Uh, but Idalia is a very egregious example of this. Like, she, first of all, we're introduced to her. She is a potential assault victim, basically. These satyrs are chasing her and they're like, we have a right to her if we catch her. And like, clearly it's, she's not into this. It's, it's going to be bad. So no, but she's not defined by being a victim of sexual assault. She's defined by being extremely flirtatious to Jaleel. That's like her survival strategy, which like on the one hand, I'm like, Get it, Adalia. Go for it. But also, you know what? She's a fictional character and they chose to make her up and they chose to have her only weakness and power, like all her only attributes are her sexuality. And then, then we find out that like nymphs, according to this world, are like automata who are like created by gods and like aren't real people. So they created this like sexy looking woman to be an assault, a sexual assault victim and then a like flirtatious vixen type character and they deliberately made her not a real person why did they do that and why did they think it was okay to have christopher one of their four main characters hit on her immediately after rescuing her from sexual assault why as you lay it out like that so like the thing that 
I was appalled, of course, as he was like, oh, great, like, it's fairy rape culture. You get the satyrs, you get the nymphs. It's just like, this is what they're choosing to focus on, right? Like, the only element that they're importing from Greek mythology, other than a list of different types of nymphs, is like, satyrs try and rape nymphs. And this is the whole dynamic. And the point of nymphs is that they go out there and they have sex with mortals and get in trouble. And it's just like, they fall in love with mortals. And that's their only purpose, I think, is at one point what Jaleel says about her. And... It strikes me that what they have put into this book is by not just saying, like, we are going to include this scene. They're basically saying, like, like the Greek gods, we have created these characters only to amuse our readers (laughs) slash inhabitants of our world with rape culture. And there is no meaning behind any of this. It's just titillating and exciting. And, you know, that's it. But you don't have to think about it anymore. And I almost guarantee that at some point, these characters will have to fight their way out of some Greek place, and they will happily murder a ton of nymphs and satyrs and other people because they are, quote, not real people. Like, I I guarantee you that this is where this is going. That does seem right. It also feels like the thing that I was mentioning is like, we can be racy now. That means we can also be misogynistic. Those are not the same things. You can have slightly more sexual content in your YA series, like maybe the teens have like, you know, desires and thoughts and stuff without also then importing a whole ton of misogyny, especially where you don't need it. Like, I'm not saying you should never have stories that involve sexism. Like, it's definitely a thing to comment on, but this is not making any interesting commentary on it. And it, I mean, to be fair, just note the sarcasm of the <laughs> To be fair to them, they do have April say something pretty feminist because she says that she might one day get a job in retail. <laughs> Idalia might someday get a job in retail. Yeah. Yes. And then they're like, oh, no, she could be a typist. She could be a secretary. She can type very fast. Because this is fun. Uh, this yeah. is great. This is witty banter, right? Yeah. For yeah. Young, 90s young adults. Can I just also, this is not the most important part of that. But like, okay, no, I have two two minor rants about nymphs. One is, again, as I've mentioned before, I do not understand why they're taking mythology that exists and then like changing it, but just a little bit and in a way that doesn't make sense. The nymphs were not invented by gods. No, they are gods. That's just, that yeah. is, that's what they are. They're minor deities. Sure, they do not live on Olympus, but they are still gods and goddesses. Like, what? Why are you? Yeah, I just read Circe. I'm so mad about this. Yes, I'm like, why? no, nymphs are cool. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, there's, sorry, there is a theme here. It's totally absurd, but David is a nymph, right? That whole thing that you were reading mm. where he's like, I, humans have no control. Mm, we come out of yeah. the styrofoam packaging. That's the analogy he's making, oh, right? No. And this whole thing with Senna, it's just, it's really, cur- like it doesn't, it's, I don't want to say crazy, not good to say that. It's, but it's very poorly done. I think that is what they're going for there, right? It's the same thing. That makes a certain amount of sense and I hate it. I don't think it really adds anything, though. No, and, like, that's the same thing with the satyr, right? Their their point is, we cut this person in half, and look, it's funny because they're still alive, and their legs are following us around, which, like, I laughed when the satyr's legs walked, but I definitely did. <laughs> one of the things I found funny. But, like, the point is, it's okay that we, we killed this person because they're just an automaton, they don't have, and they're still alive, and it's fine, and... 
as Ted says, I, I imagine you're right that like maybe they're going to go on some sort of killing rampage and murder a bunch of nymphs and it'll be fine because they're automatons created by the gods. And it's like, well, I so are we all apparently. Like it just, I found it so, so incredibly frustrating on the, on the part of the authors. And I just also want to point out the one other part of this that was just banana pants wild was when they are, Christopher in particular, is teasing Jaleel because Idalia has a crush on him and is like pursuing him. That is not Jaleel's fault. And Christopher is an asshole for mocking him for it. And Jaleel takes good sense of humor, couple good comebacks, strikes up a conversation with Adelia, who's the only one who does that, learns more about her mm-hmm. and, and understands, tries to understand more about where she comes from, et cetera, et cetera. But at one point, uh, as they're making fun of Jaleel, <clears throat> David says, part of me was resentfully glad to see it. Suddenly, I wasn't the only one to be considered suspect for having a relationship. <laughs> couple things. That's not a f***ing relationship. What's wrong with you? She has a, she is pursuing someone who is uninterested in her, which he is making clear. That is not a relationship. You know what else isn't a relationship? Whatever f***ing think you have with Senna. <laughs> also, we already said that Idalia is like not supposed to be a real person in this yeah. weird mythology. So, so that's what David thinks a relationship is? There was one weird thing, though, that Adalia wants Jaleel's human heart for some reason. And I, I took that literally. Like, uh, she literally yeah. wants his human heart. No, that which, would like, have been way I cooler. don't expect that to come back, but because yeah. his heart got switched out for, like, another one. I think that's just an excuse for her to be let, put her hand on his chest and be like, wait, you don't have a heartbeat. Okay. I know, but I also thought she literally wanted it. No, that would have been way too cool. I was hoping that we would, that would like, cool. like Jaleel would get his stone heart ripped out or something. <gasps> that would be awesome. Again, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, there. yeah, it's not, it's not that these books are set up with no payoff, because it's not set up. Nothing they do is, like, setting up anything. <laughs> it's just, just a bunch of things that just happen in a row, but they don't connect to each other. It's like, okay, so, so story structure, think, like, A, B, C, B, A where what we learned at the beginning of the story helps us, like, reach the end of the story kind of stuff. But it's just, like, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. And so when we get to the end of it, we'll be like, it's a whole story. No, it's, like, a whole list of things that happened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that sucked and was sexist and terrible. I want to focus a little more on Christopher's comments after they rescue Adalia from the satyrs. So he's like, he's like kind of leering at Idalia and is like, oh yeah, I want a set in all colors. She's all green. And he's like, yeah, I want a set in all colors. And April says something like, don't say that. I, I didn't write down her exact comment, but she very rightly is like, dude, no. And he's like, geez, who do you think I am? I can't make a harmless joke. She's probably older than we are. I'm sorry, Christopher, that was not the problem. So she's also, she's like solid green and she's also like four feet tall, but like, seems to be a fully grown person and it turns out she's like you know thousands of years old or whatever but the problem was not that we thought you were making sexualized comments about a child the problem was that you were making well, really grossly hitting comments. on someone but really grossly hitting on someone who was just almost a rape victim like that's don't like that is not the problem christopher and David mentions that, like, oh, April's just appointed herself to be this girl's protector. And I'm like, yes, 
Because you're all menacing her. Yeah. Also, then he makes a joke about how fast she is. With the implication that she would be very fast in bed. Could be the greatest two and a half seconds of your life. Uh, Which, by the way, they all, including April, smile about. So, f*** all y'all. Because part of that joke was indicating that Jaleel wouldn't last very long in bed either. I just... It's all terrible. There's also a bunch of, like, weird rape jokes that are also, some of them are also, like, homophobic that I did not appreciate. There's a San Francisco joke that Christopher makes, which, like, I don't know what you're trying to say, but I don't like it. I actually didn't get that for a minute, because I was like, it was, the line was, we have to find Fairyland, and then Christopher says, and don't mention San Francisco, and I was like, what's wrong with mentioning, oh, because San Francisco is Fairyland, because that's our slang, apparently. Yeah. And it, it's also a tie back to when they first meet the Satters, where one of them says, uh, one of them is very drunk and says something like, I may be so drunk, I, I'll not care whether I consort with nymph or mortal woman or mortal fool. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Turn around, mortal, and let me see if you'll do in place of a nymph. Which, like, cool joke! Great mm-hmm, job! Mm-hmm. We love rape jokes. It, they're really funny. Let's have more of them, please, in young adult literature. Thank you. There was also, I might be wrong about this, but I think some, like, very subtle ableism in Adalia's dialogue, where she's talking about Zeus or Aphrodite or even that nasty old Hephaestus. Yeah, shut up. Like, okay, so Zeus is, like, notoriously uh, sleazy, so I don't think it's like, I don't think it's like, oh, well, maybe Hephaestus, like, hits on the nymphs and that's gross. I'm sure Zeus hits on way more people than anyone else. So that's not what she's talking about. So presumably she means the, like, physical disability that he has. I forget, like, he has, like, a crushed foot or something. Yes. Also, and, like, I did, because I got distracted by this, that sentence, went and to see Zeus famously promiscuous, would sleep with anything that moved and sometimes things that didn't move. Mm -hmm. Aphrodite, also pretty promiscuous. Hephaestus, not notably into nymphs, mortals, Mm. like, was pretty happily married to different women, depending on which mythology tradition you're looking at, but, like, was pretty married and faithful, and so you're just being mean because he was kind of ugly. Like, rude. Oh, maybe she doesn't like him because he doesn't sleep with nymphs. I don't think that's actually it. I think I it's thought, probably ableist, I mean, but... I wouldn't be surprised if the root of Hephaestus's ugliness is has ableist roots, but I feel like my understanding of the story was that Aphrodite was punished by being married off to the ugliest god. And, like, maybe I didn't understand it at the time that that was an ableist story, but, like, I'm not sure that Apple Grant, they might just have internalized Hephaestus was ugly and Aphrodite was hot, mm-hmm. which is a different, is, is a problem in a different way, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that's the same, by the way, the, the thing about the nymphs, too, that we were saying that they're automatons, they are described as uh, interior decoration, paintings the gods might hang around Olympus to make the place look good. No, not accurate or... Uh, good at all but then also the way that they define being a person is the injustice of living beings in the likeness of humans who had no real purpose no hope of a purpose so the only way to be human is if you have a purpose because i'd like to introduce you to the gods (laughs) (laughs) what are you talking about Mm. i don't know i found it so offensive this whole book yeah there was also a fun like racist interlude and like when David's back in Chicago and he is like driving yes. and he feels sick and he pulls over to like throw up in some like the driveway of a mansion because he's on a road that I'm sure Grace. Oh my gosh! With I forgot this shoulder. scene. 
Yeah, and so this woman comes out, and he's like, based on how she's dressed, she's probably the maid. And she says something in an accent that he can't place, like, you have a message. And and he says, no, no, I just, sorry, I just had to, I was just sick, I had to pull over. And she says, like, something sort of ominous that implies she kind of knows what's going on in Everworld. And he's like, she was some superstitious old Mexican lady or Polish lady or whatever. Rich men's maids were all Mexican or Polish around here. Which, like, the second half might be true, but, like... Way to dismiss this person as like, oh, well, it doesn't matter what she's saying because she's probably Mexican or Polish. Racist, classist, garbage. Absolute fucking garbage. I read that as she's clearly Iris, like the god, right? The goddess of sending messages and that he just couldn't recognize the, I think she's one of, no. You're giving them too much credit. (laughs) <laughs> this will never I mean, be mentioned again. But it should be interesting that there are other people in real world who know about yeah. Everworld, but it's not. But that doesn't go and anywhere. the fact that he randomly pulls off the road in front of her, surely that coincidence will not be explained <laughs> and they will never revisit it. Like, it's, they, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's all very terrible and hated all very much. Can I ask you guys to, someone who has the book in front of them? Yeah. I, I have a thing that I think is a just a typo in the trans transliteration thing that I had. That I was reading, this is in chapter seven. They're talking about Adelia. Before the suddenly I wasn't the one considered suspect for having a relationship. There's a sentence, there's a paragraph that starts. Where did Senna go when she slept? Did she cross back over into the real world? The nymph laughed, her laughter woke up woke Christopher just enough to cause him to spit out the peach. You call it the real world, Adelia asked. Is this not as not real as well? Can you find that passage? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the next sen- the next paragraph is I shrugged. It was disturbing talking to Adelia. A little like going to a nude beach and trying to talk football with the first beach bermy you find. Bunny. <laughs> Bunny. Bunny. <laughs> so much. I knew it was a typo, but I could not figure out what that word should be. And I was not staring at going, what the word is that? Burmy to bunny, that makes much more sense. And then I was like, wait, maybe it's not because a Burmy is, because I looked it up just in case I was just not, I didn't know the word. Just so you guys know, a Burmy uh, is a type of Pokemon. Uh, and <laughs> it, it looks like That would this. have been less of, oh, that kind of looks like Adelia. Which kind of looks like Adelia. And I was like, oh, maybe they're making a, I'm sure that's not it, but that would have been very that would be funny. less no, he's talking about the that like, Pokemon did not exist. This is yeah. so weird. I'm having a real conversation with this with a beautiful woman. How odd. Bunny makes much more sense. I'm going to change that in my file. Um, okay, sorry. Thank you. I just needed to find out what the real words. <laughs> yeah. No, he's he's attributing it to trying to talk about manly things with a woman who's naked. Like, he wasn't attracted to her. He was just embarrassed and awkward. I hate everybody. So I have some early aughts moments, Mm. um, and then we should do some predicting of the next book. But do we have any other things we want to talk about first? I just have a couple of random things. I loved the exchanging their hearts for rubies thing. Oh, yeah. Me too. That was actually I also thought it was perfect. I like it. Senna has a witch's heart and it's too expensive and he wouldn't do it. It totally made, it's like, it's some like, she's a higher level in like her, whatever her Dungeons and Dragons character Mm -hmm. class is. And it's just like, he can't afford it. Like, I love that. I thought that that was really awesome. I liked the shout out to Honeysuckle on Maryland's Eastern Shore. Oh, I noticed Um, that, yeah. I have, I have partaken from said Honeysuckle. It's always very easy to Mm. identify and delicious. But you can't tell anyone where we're from. 
Oh, I can't. No, that's fine. <laughs> there was one other thing. Oh, I guess maybe this is more of a <laughs> audience moment. But the, the other thing that jumps out to me about the, like, capitalism will save the world thing is the very 90s point of reference. He's like, this market had everything, even prostitutes and slaves, if we wanted them, which, of course, we don't. And it's like, again, they don't care at all about the, yeah. the conditions that exist for people in this world. It, like, it doesn't, it doesn't even register as something that should be on their radar. It's uh, not surprising, but... Yeah, I have two little things as well. Uh, one is an, an idiom that I had never heard before and that I love very much and plan to use often, so just get excited for this. David is um, excusing why he hasn't come up with a with a good plan yet. And he says, okay, I've been pretty much up to my rear end in alligators. The phrase is obviously <laughs> up to my ass in alligators. Um, I thought that was, one, a hilariously ridiculous idiom. And two, up to my rear end in alligators is just so much funnier than up to my ass in alligators. I don't know why, but I thought that was really funny. He should have just said up to my rear in reptiles, because he talks about that later, Ooh, that like, are dragons reptiles? That would have been better. Um, and then, uh, Jenny, um, I'm just going to real fast r- tell you you can cut this next bit, and probably should. Nice. So just <laughs> That probably means I won't. Great. Future okay. Jenny, feel free to cut this. But I'd like to point out, there are several passages in this book that fell into a category I called in my notes YA Fifty Shades of Grey. Wait, for example, we call it Fifty Shades of YA? Yes, Fifty Shades yes. of YA. <clears throat> and I'm going to read this whole passage, and I want you to imagine it's about Fifty Shades of Grey. I'm also definitely not cutting this. Just so I mentioned know. part of this earlier, but I'm going to read the whole passage now because the end of it is so funny to me. I would have crawled to her then, too, crawled and pressed my body against hers and my lips against hers and held and touched and demanded. Now I crawled, knowing there was no truth in it, knowing there would never be love, but crawling just the same because I was weak and she was strong and I wanted it to be that way. I had to go to her because I had to, that was all, because she was where I had to be, because there was no going back. She welcomed me, let me settle beside her, let me lean back against her shoulder, let my cheek rest against her, let me breathe her, let me glow with the power that came from her, let me close my eyes and imagine her in a different world. She leaned down, raised my head just a little and kissed me and I thought, ah, then she is scared, she is worried, she does need me still, maybe just for a while. Her lips withered my strength, her touch (laughs) tightened the handcuffs. She had put the collar around my neck and held the leash in her hand. Kinky. <laughs> <laughs> so this oh, is, my, my point is, this is a dom-sub relationship, and the reason she freaks mm. out later is that he has reversed their roles without oh. her consent and become the dom when he ties her up and, and gags her uh, non-consensually because they had only consented for him to be handcuffed and gagged and for her to be doing the leashing. I just, her hand, her touch tightened the handcuffs. She put a collar around my neck and held the leash in her hand. What? This is y- <laughs> YA. Fifty Shades of YA. That's my whole point. Okay. You can cut that. Maybe. That was delightful. We'll see. I, there was one other thing that jumped out to me. So do you guys remember in book four how Nidhogger had troll butlers? Mm-hmm. Did he? Were there troll butlers in book four? I don't remember that. Because we pretty much just walked into in the treasure room. In this book, I remember that. In the yeah. in the last book, 
Where were his butlers? Why does Ned Hogger have troll butlers? And why do they serve David bread and cheese? Because he wants changed, bread and cheese. He this has changed for the it. whole. It's like Nidhogger is not like a dragon in like uh, a pile of gold in a lair. Now Nidhogger is like Scrooge McDuck being waited <laughs> on by a staff of trolls in like you know dressed up in, so in tailcoats, swimming pool, serving bread and cheese. It was a, a totally bizarre. I I cackled when they came out with the bread and cheese. I thought it was great. Unbelievable. All right. Do you want to do odds moments? Yeah, so this book did come out in 2000, so we're officially in the aughts. <clears throat> I had I had two that I couldn't decide which one was my favorite. And yet a part of me, some echo of my old-fashioned, ranting, socialist grandfather, was outraged. I mean, how much treasure did one dragon need? I was like, yeah, me Those too, though. socialists, they're all two generations back. I really, really, really wish David were replaced with Grandpa Levin. For the entire yes. duration of the story. Would love it would be so, so good. He would so know how to like deal with these <laughs> like stupid teenagers and their issues. Like he would put Christopher can, in his place. Can anyone do a once again I am asking you, Bernie Bernie guy? <laughs> I'm not confident in my Bernie voice. <clears throat> once again, I am asking you to kill the dragon. It's perfect. Stop That's trusting perfect. Senna. That's perfect. <laughs> Once again, I'm asking you. <laughs> so my other favorite Ots moment was Jaleel's line. We're true blue Americans. We're not some kind of Iraqis or Serbs or whatever. We're not in the cult of David. None of us is into going down in flames. We don't do the whole follow the fool till he gets us killed thing. I read this two days after the attempted coup. I hope that by the time this comes out, that phrase still has meaning because there's only been one. Christ on cracker. Yeah. Uh, that was a real <laughs> nice moment. That was also real racist. And also... Oh, yeah. Just real insulting to Americans and also everyone else in the world. And also... Yeah. Again, the, the like, Apple Grant's pre-9-11 knowledge of geopolitical issues is like really fascinating to me because this is 2000 and they're like you know we're not like the iraqis it's like did you know that we were about to in a year declare war on them for no reason like what how did you what it how why i just it's all awful i hated it so much and yeah it's just like it's the perfect example of american exceptionalism thinking like yeah and you could apply it to any pretty much anything that has happened since this book was published yeah good point and i guess it reveals how dumb the like the fact that they're american teens who are so cynical and like Mm. worldwide they're like yeah we're cynical we see through everything right it just reveals how how fundamentally silly that idea is yes Yes, it's like, so, oh, we've reached the end of history where we understand how to see through, like, lies and stuff. Yeah. No, you just have been taken in by a different set of them, and you think that you're free. It's particularly ironic two days after the, let's just call it the January 6th putsch, uh, was, is, uh, don't, we don't do that whole follow the fool till he gets us all killed yeah. thing, because have I got news for several <laughs> thousand of our fellow Americans. Hmm. Uh, there were some other 90s moments that I had. Um, there were two references to AOL. One, the AOL yeah. voice that says, welcome. Um, and one <laughs> that uh, the money 
that will be provided by the telegraph and electricity will allow the, the person to be AT&T and Dow Jones and AOL all rolled into one. Big players of the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then there's also an MTV VJ. Yeah. Made me laugh. I had to look up what a VJ was and then I found it. <laughs> there was the amazing reference to like seeing a videotape of yourself drunk. Yeah. I think that's that's pretty much all I had. There was a mention of HDTV, which I was like, oh yeah, we're like in the odds now. Okay. That does feel like we're... Just, just barely. This was January 2000. Oh, okay. So we're yeah. a bit, yeah. Just just uh, by the skin of our teeth in the odds. I was going to say, is this a good segue to predict the next book? Yes, I think it is. Oh, this is the one with a creepy head one on the cover. It's book six, so it has a fly on the cover. <laughs> so... <Never's joke. laughs> Thank you, Ted. This next one is Fear the Fantastic. It does have this huge, like, blue-eyed fly-type creature on the cover. And the inside cover, it seems to be a line of of these fly creatures, presumably Het One, who are marching, oh, like a like a army contingent, like, marching towards some distant mountains. I think that they're going to interact with uh, the Het Ones and Ka'anor in this. Just putting that out there. Huh. So this is actually what... This is this is the test because Meg, what you and I have been saying is like just give us an alien world that's totally different and do some good storytelling. So here, mm-hmm. this is going to be pure distilled whatever the heck Apple Grant wants to write about. Yeah, we're not going to be trying to make it in our in our minds like any real mythology of Earth. I think somehow it will still be Northern European. I was going to say, I can't wait to find out that Ka'anor really admires the example of insert specific Northern culture here and has done <laughs> everything to make uh, their realm exactly like it. Do you God, think they're going to so be Nazis? Right. I think they're going to be Nazis. That's a good take. Oh. I, I here, My prediction, I'm thinking about Christopher because unfortunately this book mm-hmm. would be from his perspective. My prediction is that Christopher is going to learn a lesson about bigotry because all of the Hetwan are mean to him <laughs> for being different. Ooh. Yeah, okay. That, that, that sounds about right. Do we think Senna will be in this one? Yes. She's going to appear two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through. Okay, sounds good. It's so specific, and I love it. <laughs> she will appear at exactly the point that she appeared in book two, which was like... After the battle in the Aztec city when they're trying to escape. And then she's just randomly mm-hmm. there for no reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Do we have any predictions about Ka'anor themselves? It's going to be a human who's come over to Ooh. Everworld. And they're just going to be Whoa. a normal person. <laughs> but they're commanding this army of Hetwan. They've won the loyalty of the Hetwans. Yeah. Ka- a normal person. <laughs> <laughs> no. His name is Connor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love that. Okay. Uh, he didn't eat a god. He has a rocket launcher. <laughs> Amazing. Which work against gods. Yeah. Has he eaten any <laughs> gods? Didn't we see the gods he ate are just like trapped with hell? Well, he didn't eat oh. Thor because Thor is trapped with hell. But... What about the Dagda? Is it Senna's real dad? <laughs> Da-anor. Da-anor. Oh, no, you beat me to it. Da-anor, yeah. I thought that they knew her dad, just not her mom. Oh, I... Th- oh, right. Oh, Ma-anor. Right. Ma-anor. 
Do you know what? Okay, I bet. I bet though, things. he's gonna be absolutely huge, caught enormous. <laughs> Gray is going to start ca ignoring us. <laughs> Gray has already started ignoring me. I have no real predictions for the next book, except that I'm also going to hate it. I will say that one of the um, Book Riot reading Read Harder challenges for 2021 was read a book with a cover you hate. And boy, did I get that out of the way real fast. (laughs) Okay, wait. I have a question. I just randomly opened this book to the middle, and I want to know, there is... A mythology that has not yet been prominently featured in one of the books that does seem like it's going to be prominently featured in this one. I want you guys to guess, based on the preferences of Apple Grant, which one you think it will be. Atlantis. Uh, I I think think Egyptian, only because there is some linguistic similarity between the name Ka-Anor and Mm. certain Egyptian gods. Mm -hmm. What about you, Ted? Well, I don't know. Do, do Greeks count? Yes. Ooh. I'm gonna. I'm gonna go for the Greeks. Yes. Yeah, um, Ted, you understand their preference for <laughs> Europeans. Yeah, that's. Is it? Is it Greeks? It is Greek. Yes. Uh, yes. There's. There's some Greek stuff happening in here. Oh, I'm gonna get to rant more about stuff. Get excited. I'm surprised that um, they're not in Hetwan land the whole time. But I guess I shouldn't I mean, be that surprised. It seems like. Maybe the Hetwans and the Greeks are just hanging out or something. I don't know. I haven't read it yet. We should read it, probably, unfortunately. I think the only way we can find out what's in it is by reading it. There's, <laughs> there's like, no Wikipedia. Like... <laughs> That's so true. There's no summaries of this anywhere because everyone knows better than to revisit these books except for us. Do, do we all have to read it or could we just, like, pick one person to read each book and then just go? <laughs> oh, like book reports. No, but like one, if, if only I read it, for example, I might not know everything to yell about, and it's important to have backup. That we all have our own unique things over which to yell. If we could exactly. all meet up in person and be in like different rooms of the same house or something that was COVID safe, we could take turns reading until we got angry and then throw the book into the other room, <laughs> and, and the then the next person, person could pick it up. Page 37! Yeah, exactly. Is that all the way to page 37? You guys are getting this book from me after every well, that, like, two But I mean, pages. what it would be is like, page 37, page 38, page 38 again. <laughs> Which is very funny because on uh, page 38 in this book is when he's talking to Adalia about being Kermit the Frog, which I hated. Perfect. Cool. Mm, this stupid book. Books. All right. But I'm glad I read it with you guys because I would have hated yeah. it more. If I had had to read it on my own. I would not have read it on my own. I only read it for you all. (laughs) (laughs) I know, pretty much. If we didn't have uh, each other here, we just would have quit long ago. (laughs) It's like the worst game of chicken imaginable. We can keep going. (laughs) We can. We're almost halfway through. In fact, the next book will be our halfway point. The first line of this one is not nearly as annoying as the first line of the other one. That's not hard. I can't yeah. We're only halfway through these books. Where is the plot? What is the point? I'm sure we'll find Who it are in these this kids. Do you know what, Gray? W T E. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends.
I'll cut this, but I just opened up this line. Dionysus, are the Red Wings Hetwan? I mean, do they talk? And I was like, the hockey team? No. 